You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For October 16th, 2019, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. With the prospects for coal fading faster every day, coal-dependent countries are suddenly garnering the world's attention as never before. Many of them are actively looking to phase out coal as quickly as possible. But what are their options for energy transition? And if the future is one with a lot less coal, with apologies to William Gibson, is it evenly distributed? To explore this question, I wanted to take a closer look at one of the most coal-dependent countries in the world, South Africa. Thanks to its abundant coal resources and its legacy of apartheid, the country has a grid that is almost entirely powered by coal, an industrial base that is powered by coal, and a huge fiscal dependence on coal exports. And in particular, coal exports to India, which, as we learned from our conversation with Tim Buckley in episodes 91 and 93, are facing worsening prospects. At the same time, South Africa has excellent wind and solar resources, enabling renewable projects to easily beat coal on price. But does that mean energy transition is taking hold there, or merely that it has the potential to do so? For answers to these questions, and to give us a quick education on the enormously complex picture of energy in South Africa, I turn to Jesse Burton, an energy policy researcher in the Energy Systems Research Group at the University of Cape Town. She studies coal, electricity, and industrial policy in South Africa, and is also a senior associate at the London-based independent climate change think tank, E3G. She has a wealth of knowledge about the energy sector in South Africa, and was already a fan of the Energy Transition Show, so I was thrilled to be able to have her join us for what turned out to be a fascinating tour of a country that has one of the highest proportional carbon footprints today, but that one day could be the poster child of energy transition. Then in the news segment of this episode, we'll have a look at a record-breaking wind auction in the United Kingdom, we'll update the list of U.S. cities contemplating gas bans, we'll observe a couple of milestones in vehicle electrification, and we'll note Netherlands' decision to phase out some of its natural gas production. But first, our conversation with Jesse Burton, recorded September 22nd, 2019. So let's bring her into the conversation now. Welcome, Jesse, to the Energy Transition Show. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me. You know, I want to hear your perspective on energy transition in South Africa today because I think it's a particularly interesting case for a few reasons. For starters, it's the most coal-dependent country in the G20 with about 70% of total primary energy and 85% of its electricity generated from coal. So it has a very long way to go to decarbonize. And yet, it's also one of the first countries to run auctions for new renewable projects with recent auctions turning in bids for new wind and solar that are around 
around 0.62 South African rands, which is around 4.2 US cents per kilowatt hour. Well, that's a great price. And that's around 60% of the price of new coal plants. So is South Africa engaging in a massive and rapid switch to cheaper wind and solar or not? <laughs> Well, you would think that given the cost differences between coal and new renewables, especially wind and solar, that we saw already back in 2015, that was the last time we actually did an auction, would mean that we would be embarking on our energy transition. <laughs> but to be honest, while expectations of transition are now quite widely accepted, and I think there's an acceptance that going forward, wind and solar is kind of the future of the electricity grid, mm. these structural shifts are still taking place really slowly. I think we have something like 160 electric vehicles in the country now <laughs> only. Wow. And wind and solar provided 4.5% of total load last year. So structurally, nothing is really changing, even though there's a lot of talk about the energy transition and the transition that South Africa is going through. Interesting. What is the main issue there? Why is the transition not moving more quickly? I think it's down almost entirely to politics. Either national level politics within the ruling party, the African National Congress, and they were the Liberation Party who kind of fought for the end of apartheid and were functionally still a one party state. Mm. But it's either that or it's dynamics with our regulated monopoly, state owned utility, which is called ESCOM. ESCOM is a coal utility and it's fighting for its life at the moment. So we're incredibly coal dependent for two main reasons. 85% of our electricity comes from this old coal fleet we have. We also get 25% of our liquid fuels from a formerly state-owned company, but now privatized, called Sassol. Coal is also our largest export, and of course, it's being used in industry all the time. So is that a coal-to-liquids operation? Exactly. Wow. So it was developed in the early 1980s in response partly to the oil crisis and partly to energy security concerns mm. around getting oil into South Africa. And it was privatized later with a lot of subsidies, actually. And it continues to receive subsidies through a regulated liquid fuels price. So that's either big kind of transition challenge. ESCOM is our biggest emitter, but Sassel is the second biggest emitter. It's 10% of national emissions come from this single coal to liquids plant. Wow. I mean, I want to make sure I understand this correctly. Was it because of apartheid that there was an oil import ban, which is what forced South Africa to switch to coal to liquids? Yes. Wow. So that we'd actually bought the technology from Nazi Germany. Probably in the early 50s, we developed the first small plant. And then in Secunda, which is the name of the coal to liquids plant, came on stream in around 1983, 1984. So it was after the, the international oil crisis. And it was in response to these kind of growing sanctions against South Africa. We were an international pariah. And it was also this kind of long-running idea in South African industrial policy and development and economic development that you need to be self-sufficient quite a lot and you need to beneficiate your minerals. And this seemed like a really good thing to do with coal. Hmm. So they developed Sassel as a state-owned enterprise, which was later privatized. And it's interesting because we actually have a regulated liquid fuels price in South Africa. So if you go and get petrol or diesel at a petrol station... It's the same price everywhere you go. Well, for petrol, not exactly for diesel. Mm. And that price is kind of built up based on an import parity price for conventional crude that's being refined somewhere else in the world and transported to South Africa, offloaded, stored, 
pipe in what's called the inland market, which is kind of the main demand center where Sassel's located. And at each step of that chain, you get little bits of add-on to the regulated price. And of course, Sassel's cost structure is entirely different to that. It's mining its own coal, converting it to sin fuels. And then it makes a huge amount of rent on that difference. Wow. I didn't really realize what a key role Sassol was playing here and also just the price controls on liquid fuels. That's that's a huge element here. But let's go back to talking about Eskom, the state-owned power company. Why is there not more effort happening in transition there? So Eskom generates about 91 or 92% of South Africa's electricity. It mostly comes from coal. About 85% of that comes from coal. We have one nuclear plant, which was also an apartheid-era dinosaur. ESCOM is also responsible for the transmission grid and most of distribution. Some local municipalities, cities run the distribution grids in their areas. But you can see it's vertically integrated. It controls everything. Yeah. And problems at ESCOM are really important. One, because it's enormous. It's our largest state-owned enterprise. And because you also have problems regionally because it's the continent's largest utility. It trades power with all of our neighbors. Hmm. And it's in an existential crisis, basically. There's been more than a decade of mismanagement there. There have been enormous governance failures. So there's actually been a parliamentary inquiry into corruption at ESCOM. It's faced spiraling costs, especially in primary energy. So coal costs have already risen more than 300% in real terms in 20 years. And at the same time, and we'll get to some of the history in a minute, but at the same time, what has happened is that it hasn't had cost-reflective tariffs. So it's been accumulating debt to build these two coal mega plants, which are called Madupi and Kassile, 4.8 gigawatts each. About mm. 25% of our installed capacity is currently under construction. Mm. And so it's basically in a debt spiral. It can't sell enough electricity to cover its costs. And government has had to actually guarantee a lot of the ESCOM debt so that it could raise capital at kind of not ridiculous costs. And that's now about 18% of the national budget is was what ESCOM's government guaranteed debt is worth. Wow. But without cost-reflective tariffs, there's no way that ESCOM can actually pay back any of the money that it's accumulated as it keeps borrowing. <laughs> right, right. So it's chronically indebted, and it's been downgraded to junk status, and the government has had to keep on bailing it out. Oh, my gosh. Well, in a paper that you shared, which I'll link to in the show notes, on the history of Eskom's power plant construction, it seems that part of the reason for this big debt overhang was because they did the same thing that many monopolies did in the U.S. They consistently overestimated future demand, built far more capacity than they needed, But this seems like a pretty extreme case. It looks like Ascom built up a reserve margin from a relatively low 12% or so in the 1970s to a whopping 40% or more by the mid-90s. So what happened there? So South Africa has kind of gone from these cycles of undercapacity and overcapacity several times in our history, which you would think by now energy planners would have learned from. (laughs) (laughs) But we haven't. So you kind of... Going back all the way to the 1950s, there was load shedding. ESCOM faced load shedding because it was increasing industrial development and the post-war boom. This kind of reverberated because what happened later in the 1970s is that all these junior engineers who'd been junior engineers in the 1950s were terrified about kind of constraining economic growth by not having enough power. And so what happens in the 1970s, and this is kind of, I think, the starting point of where we are now today with ESCOM is one, you have very high electricity demand growth because of of booming gold demand globally. 
you have this shadow in people's minds about not meeting demand. And ESCOM basically went on an expansion spree. So they connected up the national grid kind of in the early 70s. And at that point, we had an installed capacity of probably about 5 gigawatts in the late 1960s. And that tripled in 10 years to 15 gigawatts by 1979. And they just carried on going. And then it went up to over 35 gigawatts by 1993. And at that point, of course, peak demand was about 24 gigawatts. And then we had this huge reserve margin, 40%. Wow. And that was almost all comprised of coal plants. So you can see it's such an incredible waste of capital. Yeah. And the underlying driver of this, I guess, was this mindset that was even the reason that ESCOM had been created. It had been created to support industrial development. And the ESCOM Act, which set up ESCOM in 1922, actually said that the goal of ESCOM was to supply cheap and abundant electricity. Hmm. So they didn't make a profit or a loss. So in that way, they were slightly different to a typical regulated utility but they would just build whatever they wanted and then get approval for the tariff later. Wow. So they could build whatever they wanted and just go for it. And that's what they did. And and on top of that, because of the apartheid state being very anxious about money and money leaving the country, there were prescribed acid rules. And these led to the availability of extra cheap capital also. So what I kind of think of as a coal subsidy now in later years. Hmm. So there was a combination there of just sort of federally driven policy to just build lots and lots of excess capacity on the grid side. And then there was also, on the fiscal side, there was rules that basically handed out far too cheap capital for them to build it all with. Exactly. And so they carried on going and there was no independent analysis of their demand projections or where we might be going, you know. So in the 80s, if you look at what ESCOM was projecting, they were imagining that we'd have a peak demand of something like 80 gigawatts in the year 2000. We're at 32 gigawatts now. (laughs) Bit of a miss there. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) You know, you see this everywhere around the world, right? Yeah. And every year. Well, not quite as extreme as this, but yeah. (laughs) Okay. And part of the problem is they didn't factor in that there should be any price response. So even though you had cheap capital going in, there was tariff effects of this big build plan. Mm. And that's a problem that we've seen until now. I mean, even in 2010, when we did our last integrated resource plan, the last official version at least, in the height of the commodities boom, ESCOM was just asking its big industrial customers, where do you think demand is going? And that's what they were making their forecasts based on. And they were 70 terawatt hours off by nine years later. Wow. It's a huge overestimation of demand every time. So the demand was overestimated because they weren't really doing like a proper demand estimation model, right? How do you get that far off, I guess is what I'm trying to get at. I think that they thought the economy would grow forever. Yeah. And they didn't think about structural changes. They didn't think that sectors other than gold and platinum mining would become more important in the economy. Right. So there was a view at the federal level, I suppose, or at the political level that there would be some huge manufacturing boom or something that would need all this power and that didn't materialize. Exactly. So then what happens is you get to the early 1990s, we have a 40% reserve margin and it doesn't make any sense to not run those plants. So then ESCOM and kind of the industrial policy part of government go out and start offering incredibly cheap electricity deals special pricing agreements they were called to a whole lot of industrial customers to try and get rid of all this excess capacity. Hmm. And so you can see the reserve margin dropped off pretty quickly because demand carried on growing. And we took some plants off the system and that kind of thing. 
but what we ended up doing was locking in a whole lot of really energy intensive industry in South Africa. So we've got aluminium smelters, but we don't actually mine any bauxite here huh. because they got very, very cheap electricity on 30 year pricing agreements or 40 year pricing agreements. Wow. <laughs> wow. You're just blowing my mind here. All right. So <laughs> between gold plating the electricity system, overbuilding the generation capacity, bringing in all sorts of energy intensive industry when maybe there wasn't actually a need for it, and then essentially vastly subsidizing the electricity that you're selling to those manufacturing facilities and then just having sort of lower than expected demand from in an organic way i mean that just sounds like a recipe for economic disaster exactly <laughs> so we still don't have cost reflective tariffs and maybe it's worth tracing what happened between that kind of excess supply in the 90s and where we are today, which is a position where we've had load shedding now over the last 14 years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what happened in the early 90s then is obviously ESCOM started basically giving away electricity at marginal cost, which in fact was not a bad idea because all this generation capacity was built. But they also came to an agreement with what then became the National Energy Regulator of South Africa, NERSA, that they would just basically be left alone a little bit for the next 10 years. Then they agreed to only increase electricity at inflation or below. And over time, what happened is they, in fact, increased electricity at below inflation for several years. So you saw the real price of electricity go down over the next 10, 15 years, actually, from the early 1990s, while ESCOM kind of ran out all of this capacity it had built. But then you get to 1998 and ESCOM can see, cool, we're going to need to start planning to build the next power station. We must start to consider that, how are we going to do it? And this is the late 1990s. You have the World Bank pushing privatization all around the world. You have a whole new kind of policy window in the post-apartheid era where everything is, at least on paper, we're kind of redesigning the whole energy system. We're saying we need diversification, we need liberalization, we need to bring in renewable energy. And in that context, the decision gets made that ESCOM is not going to be allowed to build anything new. Um, that the sector is going to be opened up for competition and that private players are going to come in and start building the next power plants. And at this point, of course, it's almost certainly going to be coal because coal was the cheapest thing still. Hmm. But of course, there's no institutional framework for other actors to come in and sell power, A. B, the current electricity prices then were still exceptionally low. They were basically just at the operating marginal cost. And ESCOM is the transmission operator. So although the system on paper is opened up, nobody comes in to try and build. And there's this long hiatus where ESCOM, in fact, keep saying to the government, we have to start building, we have to start building. Nothing happens until it becomes apparent that we're going to run out of power in about 2005 or 2007. And that's when we had the next bout of load shedding. Huh. And so at the very last minute, I think in this realization that we were going to start running out of capacity again, the government says, OK, go build. And ESCOM starts building Madupi and Casida, these two mega plants. So when we take these investment decisions on these 4.8, 4.8 gigawatt plants, it was in this context, this like drive to always supply cheap and abundant electricity, this assumption that there's going to be no structural change in the economy, this idea that demand growth doesn't ever organically change, as you put it. And what had happened is that in the 10 years when ESCOM hadn't been building, they'd lost all capacity to manage mega construction projects. So they didn't know how to do it anymore, that the team had been let go. Uh, wow. <laughs> um, and then we get to 2005 and we start getting load shedding and ESCOM has to start running all the remaining plant hard 
to keep the lights on in the middle of the commodities boom, no less. Wow. Wow. What a, just a horror show of mismanagement just over and over and over. Exactly. So at least tariffs kind of started to rise from sort of the 2006 or so, but they're still not cost-reflective. And what's happened in that time is that ESCOM, its operating costs have gone up a lot, but also it's been having to borrow and borrow and borrow to build these two plants, which are pretty expensive. They're not more than 10 years of construction time, so they're very over budget and they vary over time. Mm. So ESCOM was bailed out 60 billion rand about five years ago, which I think at the time was probably about 6 billion US dollars. This year, another 23 billion rand for this year, next year, and the year after was committed to in the national budget. And then a further special appropriations bill was passed earlier this year to put another 56 billion rand, which is about 4 billion US dollars into ESCOM last month. So this year alone, we've had a $9 billion bailout for the utility to try and plug this hole in a system. Wow. So you've just had this explosion of debt, and it's all gone onto the federal balance sheet. You know, I should also mention briefly, for those who may not know natively the history of South Africa, that it was really 1991, I think, is when apartheid was officially outlawed, and then it took several years more for actually to be implemented. So this boom that you're talking about that happened in the late 90s was really just finally starting to recover and rebuild after the apartheid era. Exactly. So we had the new ANC government came into power in 1994, Nelson Mandela became the president. And then we had what was called the government of national unity, which was the old apartheid state and the new ANC government sort of working awkwardly alongside each other for two years. Okay, so we had this debt explosion, and then the debt associated with these coal plants is now becoming a major concern for the stability of the country, I think. I mean, Moody's just recently downgraded the North American coal sector from a stable to a negative outlook. So it's unsurprising that there are now fears that Eskom will have to be bailed out again. Investors dumped South African government bonds at a rate of almost 2 billion rand, or about $132 million a day in August this year, according to Bloomberg. And that has raised the concern that South Africa's bonds will be downgraded from investment grade to junk and trigger an exodus of investment capital. So that makes it just all the more difficult to close the current account deficit, to put it mildly. I mean, what is the thinking within the power sector about this government debt issue? Look, it's basically considered a national crisis. ESCOM has already been downgraded. They're junk. Some of their debt is government guaranteed, so it can raise debt at least in that portion, at a slightly lower cost. But the government also can't afford to just take all of that debt onto its balance sheet. If ESCOM just hands it over onto the state, our debt-to-GDP ratios will go kind of through the roof. It'll be over 60%, I think. Oh, boy. And the risk then is that it triggers a downgrade of the sovereign, in which case the whole government's ability to raise debt starts to come under pressure. Yeah, then, then then you're really screwed. Okay. So, all right. So, so financially, it's a failing enterprise, ESCOM is, perhaps on par with other state-owned fossil energy companies that have also dragged down or threatened to destroy the national economy, like Mexico's Pemex or Petroleos de Venezuela. But is ESCOM still managing to keep the lights on? <laughs> well, they are this month, but I think that's largely because the economy is just doing really, really badly. We've even seen an ESCOM board member come out to say that if we exceed 1% GDP growth, that South Africa is going to have load shedding again. Wow. 
I know. And to put that in context, as an economy, we need about 6% GDP growth per year to lower some of our kind of terrible metrics on, for example, unemployment. We have 40% unemployment basically in South Africa. So we really need growth. But at the moment, ESCOM is just, it just stamps on that, which is really unfortunate. And in general, so that's kind of the broader context. In general, security of supply has deteriorated. Obviously, I mentioned we had load shedding going back as far as 2005. And then we had really bad load shedding in 2008, again in 2014-15. And we've had load shedding in the last two years again. And the cause now is not the shortage of capacity because, in fact, demand is way down. Industrial demand is 10% down over the last 10 years. Hmm. But actually, we're seeing really poor availability of the rest of the fleet. Hmm. So the availability factor of the ESCOM fleet is now 69%. So on paper, we've got peak demand of around 31 or 32 gigawatts, but an installed capacity of around 45 gigawatts. But it's mostly tied up in these really performing coal plants. And of course, all these plants were built in the 70s and 80s. So they're almost all over 30 years of age. I think the average age of the fleet is 37 years. Um, wow. Plants, their turbine and boiler design lives have been exceeded by 300%. And fortunately, over the last few years, instead of prioritizing maintenance on this aging fleet, which is what you would expect, ESCOM has been prioritizing CapEx at Madupe and Casile which it was kind of envisioned would come online. And as each of them came online, we could take off some of these really old plants, some of which were built in the 60s. But the units that are being commissioned at, es- at Madhub and Kassile are not running at their rated capacity. And it's very hard to get good information about it. And there's very different numbers in the public domain. But it sounds like they're running at only about 60% of their gross capacity of almost 800 megawatts per unit. Wow. I mean, why are these plants operating at such low capacity factors? So it's a kind of a hangover from apartheid as well. Everything is always shrouded in secrecy in South Africa. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show are free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition.
And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. The price of offshore wind in the UK has fallen so hard, so fast, that under the Contracts for Difference auction scheme used to determine prices for renewable power, the winning bidder from the September 19th auction will likely pay a subsidy back to the wholesale market rather than the other way around. The UK's Contracts for Difference system works like this. The government issues 15-year contracts at a given strike price. If the wholesale power price drops below the contract strike price, the government will pay the project developer the difference up to the contract strike price, and if the wholesale price is above the strike price, the project owner pays the difference back to the government. In the September 19th auction, the winning bids cleared at the record low price of £39.65p or $50.05 US per megawatt hour for delivery in 2023-2024, and at £41.61p per megawatt hour for delivery year 2024-25. Since that is well below the government's reference price of 48 to £51 per megawatt hour for the three years through 2025, it seems the developers could wind up paying the difference, although the reporting I found on that point was inconsistent and unclear. In any case, the important fact here is that offshore wind has now reached the point where it needs no subsidy and costs the government nothing in the UK. The latest auction will yield six offshore wind projects for a total of 5.8 gigawatts of new capacity, and it highlights the absurdity of the UK moving forward with its Hinkley Point C nuclear power plant, which will begin power generation at some indeterminate time in the future at more than twice the price of these offshore wind projects. Item 2. As we mentioned in the news segment of episode 104, there is a growing movement in the U.S. to ban the connection of new buildings to natural gas service as a part of the effort to electrify everything and eliminate emissions from natural gas appliances and distribution networks. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at MikeSugarMusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.